Hey, everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. If you could, leave a rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On The Margin. Today, I am joined by the one, the only, my co-host. Ah, okay. I get, I get two adjectives. One is <laughs> only. Like out there, it. yeah. Um, awesome. Great, great to be here. And uh, you know, quick reveal. So I, I, I went full on green shirt today. Last week I had you know the green T-shirt, and I, I am clearly taking full credit for the the God candle on Monday. You know, fifteen percent update. Clearly, because I wore the green T-shirt. Um, but I've got on the Irish flag uniform, which my wife says I'm not supposed to wear. So I got the orange pants and I went full on maxi Bitcoin, not blockchain in honor of, you know, I went on uh, <laughs> a uh, maxi spaces with, with Dylan and David on uh, Monday night. Um, everyone was celebrating the, the uh, big move up in, in Bitcoin and, uh, I, I went to celebrate, but also to say, Hey guys, yes, the QSIP, someone found it. That was actually really good reporting, by the way, monitoring QSIPs to see when it was actually approved. Uh, that was pretty good. Um, not pretty good. It was really good. And so, yeah, I mean, this thing's coming and so everybody was hooping and hollering and, and, you know, Bitcoin's up big. I said, you do realize there is a slight chance that there's a little Trojan horse going on here. So let's let's not assume that they're done fighting. They being the uh, the incumbents. So, so what Mark here at Mark? I'll just I'll just qualify for for those listeners who don't follow Bitcoin as as closely as you and I do. So last week was a very good week price action wise for Bitcoin. So. On our last week's roundup, we talked about the false start coming from the Cointelegraph uh, interns, so to speak, right? Where there was this false headline that the iShares ETF got approved. Bitcoin moved extremely quickly on that news. It was very quickly understood that that was not actually the case. Okay, bit of a gaffe, yada, yada. But the price action was pretty interesting. It didn't actually retrace the entire move. Instead, it sort of started to slowly grind up. And the thinking was that, well, maybe... Um, maybe market participants found that, wow, this actually moved pretty quickly. And there are some folks that are offsides. This last week, the QSIP that you were talking about was eagle-eyed reporter found that on the DTCC registrar, there was a ticker IBTC, which is what the iShares BlackRock Bitcoin ETF would be called. So the thought is that is the market move. There are also some dynamics in the in the options market for, for Bitcoin. There's a big uh, call seller on Deribit, which is the leading options platform for Bitcoin, selling a whole bunch of options calls. Uh, there was there was a mini gamma squeeze that ended up happening. If you remember this, this was happening around like the GameStop AMC part of the of the lockdown. So there were a couple of different dynamics at play here, but it led to this, yeah, this this God candle of Bitcoin moving up about fifteen percent in in a matter of uh, matter of minutes. Um, and I guess I guess the question being there's there's a whole bunch of different angles that we can explore on this. I think uh, there's a there's a Bitcoin ETF angle and potentially some front running there. There's a real rates angle that you and I have talked about a little bit. 
Then there's just the the good old having four year cycle uh, part of this as well. So I, I, I'd be curious, Mark. I guess I'll just um, you know the the chatter around around crypto in general this week has been you know sort of cautiously is this a return of the bull market? Are we are we back here? What do you think about that? <laughs> we, we we've been talking about that for a year. Michael. I mean, it's so funny, right? I mean, and next someone tweeted at me this. They said, hey, Morgan Stanley just declared the the bear market in Bitcoin over, or no, crypto winter over. I, and he said, you, you, you said that was over a long time ago. Yeah, it was. I mean, crypto winter ended a year and a half ago, right? I mean, th- this is what's comical about the bandwagon jumping and and the, you know, Johnny come lately, so or Susie come lately's. Um, I mean, it's it's almost silly, right? To to say, oh, we're we're out of a bear market. We're up over a hundred percent in the past year. Okay, if we go back a year ago, I mean, technically, exactly one year. Uh, it's only 68.7%. But for about a week and a half at the very trough of the SPF fiasco. By the way, have you heard the wor- the word the letters SBF this week? No, you have not. It was amazing how that vanished from the airwaves. No stories, no, no like play-by-play from the from the trial, I mean, I don't. I have a. I have a theory on, on why that is, but I have. Um, I have a theory too. It's going to be different from yours. I just think everyone's sick of it. I just think I like. I personally, as a consumer of this stuff, I just like like we. So we, you know, for for our events for the the coming year, we have regular meetings and we talk about content planning and stuff like that. And the theme at every single one of these is we're not looking back. We're looking forward. All right, the last 18 months are behind us. People generally don't care about that. People are looking forward at the opportunity. That has been the theme of, we've got, you know, two conference brands, DAS. We talked about DAS London, Margin 20, baby, me, Mark, and I. And then Permissionless. And both of those opportunities for very different reasons. You know, it's like, I, but that's, that's my personal. Yeah, but Michael, you and the rest of the team at Blockers are, are intelligent. <laughs> media is not intelligent. <laughs> Mainstream media... It's all about clicks, baby. And they would be reporting. Now, maybe maybe there was a break in the trial or something. I, I mean, I, I don't think there was. But I my, look, I believe completely that the, you know, big lawsuit filed by the, the New York AG was a smokescreen, right, to divert attention from the SBF trial and get it on these, these other perpetrators. I'm like, well, the, but they're not perpetrators. They're the victims. Sam stole from all these people, right? Let me Sam and Caroline and whoever else was involved. But but they they they're the ones that are they're the perpetrators. They're the people are are victims. Genesis Trading is not a perpetrator, right? The Winklevoss twins are not a perpetrator. They are the victims. So anyway, but all that said, um, I. I think the the idea that suddenly people are saying, "Oh, you know, we're we're back in a bull market." Well, 
again, we've, we've been in a bull market for, for a year. And that chart that you showed, what's so great about it? It's a massive accumulation pattern. Now, yeah, there's, there's two types of patterns in, in markets. There's accumulation and distribution. And accumulation patterns are a series of higher highs and higher lows. It doesn't mean straight up. Markets don't go straight up. They have volatility. They have ebbs and flows and people get excited and people get afraid and greed and fear. But when overall there's general accumulation, you make uh, higher highs and then you fall back, but you don't go all the way back to the previous low. You, you make a higher low and then, then there's more accumulation. And the opposite happens in distribution. In distribution, you make a lower lows and lower highs. So it's like a ball bouncing down a set of stairs. That's a bad place. So you look at Netflix chart or um, uh, even even uh, Amazon lately. Um, there's a whole bunch of them that are definitely in a distribution pattern. And, and I think big tech is about to to run into that to that. Uh, proverbial wall on that. But Bitcoin is definitely in an accumulation pattern. And the whole idea of front running the ETF, yeah, on the margin. Hey, see how I did that? Uh, on the margin, uh, yes, that that is true. But overall, it's impossible because the what I mean by that is there's no money in the ETF. When the money comes into the ETF, it's going to steamroll everything because the amount of money that's likely to go into that ETF uh, is going to dwarf all of the little traders trying to quote unquote front run um, that, that move. So I, I think the party's just getting started. So you brought up a whole bunch of good points there. For those of you who are following along, we're looking at uh, the Bitcoin we're looking at the Bitcoin plus the one-year HODL wave. And Mark, you're going to like this chart because it is not a chart crime. This is a log chart of Bitcoin's price going back to oh 2011. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing exactly. that someone actually did a long-term chart using log scale. Wow. And, and what, you, what you also see here is this, this one-year HODL wave. So what this is a measure of is sort of long. This is one of the cool things about crypto in general, Bitcoin, other crypto assets, is that you've got pretty granular on-chain data. And you can see what the holder sort of mix of the market looks like. And what you can see around various cycles here is that the the HODL weight, the, the people that are holding for longer than a year actually tends to go up as the price of Bitcoin goes down. This is sort of this is sort of related to the the coin metrics metric uh MVRV, which is basically undefeated in calling uh, certainly bear and, and bull markets. Um, but basically what it says is that, yeah, as the as the price of Bitcoin goes down, the tourists leave, but there's this like religious base of holders. And this was the first thing that attracted Paul Tudor Jones to the space as well, back when he called Bitcoin the fastest horse in 2020. You just have this base of people that are not going to sell no matter what. Um, but it's also a pretty good indicator of when this thing starts to to peak that's probably the time to to start looking at it again. Just to just to go through as well the some of the the ETF information that you were discussing. There's um so here are all of the different uh, issuers who are filed for for an ETF. There's the GBTC Grayscale, which is a conversion from their GBTC trust. 
21 shares, ARC 21 shares. There's the iShares, the BlackRock Bitcoin Trust, Bitwise, VanEck, Wisdom Tree, Invesco, uh, Wise Origin, which is Fidelity, Valkyrie, Globlex, Hashdex, and the Franklin Bitcoin ETF. So lots of different, uh, lots of different issuers here that are gunning for this. And you see there are these, I think the, the thing that the market is looking at is the, the iShares Bitcoin trust. And there are, there's a first, second, third, and final deadline. For iShares, we've already passed the first and second, which was on September 2nd and October 17th. The next deadlines that we and the market are looking at are January 15th and March 13th as well. So that'll be, that's sort of the timeline for the ETF. I tend to agree with you on uh, the front running is not, is not the show, so to speak. That's probably the beginning of the show. Obviously not financial advice, but we, we, we've talked the about warm-up yeah. band. It's, it's like watching, it's watch, like watching Toto before you get to see Journey. I mean, yeah. it's the warm-up act. So here's what I wanted to ask you about here. I put this, someone, someone put this chart, but this is just so great. It's the, so for those of you who are following along, not via video, we're looking at the psychology of a market chart. And you've, you've most likely seen this chart, which is sort of this run up bubble. And there's the description of what the sentiment is around the time that the price action is happening. So in the beginning, it's a kind of hope, then it's optimism, thrill at the very peak, it's euphoria. Oh, then we run off the absolute top. There's a little mini bear market, which may be what we saw in the, uh, in stocks this year, which is complacency. Then it goes all the way down into anxiety, denial, panic, depression. And then right at the end of that is when price starts to run back up again and it's disbelief. This is a sucker's rally. And someone has drawn this literally right on the, the Bitcoin price chart, which is amazing. It lines up almost it's, one for it's, one. It's, it's, it is amazing, and, but, it, but it's not amazing. And the reason it's not amazing, the reason it's, it's so great is what the dark blue, the, the lower chart is, is human emotion. And what the top chart is, is the Bitcoin price, which is driven by human emotion. Bitcoin's still young as a market, right? It's not mature like equity. So equities, if you go back and you look at previous bubbles, you know, the 1929 bubble or the 1840s bubble or, or you know, when, when markets were, were very young and they weren't sophisticated and computerized and the machines didn't run everything, you could overlay this chart. Like if you overlaid the 1929 crash on this chart, it would follow it perfectly, precisely, including the, you know, the return to normal kind of bounce after the initial drop. And then the, there's the straight down and, and the, the depression, anxiety, denial, all the things, you know, the five stages. And if you looked at the 2001, 2002, crash same thing 2007 2008 same thing but now the equity market isn't human anymore it's machines there are no humans you go to new york stock exchange there are no humans right bitcoin's run by humans it is mostly individuals there's there's a few machines out there trading on the margin <laughs> see how i did that again wow look at that um twice mark do you know the leo meme the no Oh my God. I could, I'll show that to you after. But right. keep going, keep going. <laughs> but anyway, I just, I just think Bitcoin is so human as a market right now. It's why we use, we have something called the Risk Managed Bitcoin Fund. 
And what it does, it's, it's either in Bitcoin or it's in cash, depending on the trend, like an old fashioned CTA, uh, commodity trading advisor, and it crushes it. <laughs> it lags in the up markets. It absolutely destroys it in the down markets. And over the long term, it, it wins meaningfully. And because, ah, that's just market timing. I'm like, yep, yep, exactly. But in human driven markets, turns out you can market time almost perfectly using simple trend following analysis and a chart like this. You know what that all reminds me of is we had Jim O'Shaughnessy, the father of Patrick O'Shaughnessy on one of the very early episodes of the Pomp Podcast before it was called the Pomp Podcast, it was called Off the Chain. And he had this line that human emotion is the last arbitrage that will never go away. And, exactly. And exactly. By the way, you know, good Notre Dame folks. And, uh, you know, I actually took a lot of classes in O'Shaughnessy Hall that they, they actually didn't build it, but um, good, good Notre Dame guys. And, uh, you know, that's actually how, believe it or not, that's actually how Pomp and I met. No worries. Because he, well, technically we met for about 15 minutes when he and Jason came into the office when we were raising an SPV for Lyft. You know, we had done all the ride-sharing companies. We did Quadi before it became DD. We did Uber. And then, you know, we did Grab and Ola. And, and so we were raising money for Lyft. And these guys had just started their uh, kind of thing where they were trying to market to, to doctors and dentists and, and things like that. Um, and full tilt capital, full tilt. Full tilt. Yeah. Yeah. I remember. And so they came in and, and we talked, we met, like I said, 15 minutes. I thought they were nice guys. Um, they ended up not investing in our SPV. They, they created their own SPV and, uh, but I didn't see him again for, for six months, but I heard him on Patrick's podcast and it was maybe the shortest version of Patrick's podcast. It was only 25 minutes. And I'm like, man, this guy sounds, this guy sounds pretty intelligent. All right. I'll follow him on Twitter. And I followed him and literally it was like, 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 that's something I would say. Wait, that is something I said. Hey, I, I need to meet this guy. So I DM'd him and uh, said, hey, you're in North Carolina. I'm in North Carolina. Let's get together. And we met for breakfast which lasted to lunch, which lasted to dinner, which turned into the next day. I mean, we didn't sleep together, but uh, turned into the next day. And um, we decided that's how we were going to form a, a company. So it was just kind of funny. Always goes back to Notre Dame and green and orange and, and looking like the leprechaun. And by the way, since you know, this is the last show that people will see before Halloween, I guess I'm going to go as the leprechaun since I'm, probably I'm dressed like the Irish flag. I think that makes sense. I think that makes sense. All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I wanted to give you the inside scoop about something that we've been cooking up at Blockworks these last couple of months. So in March of this coming year, in London, Blockworks is going to be gathering 1,200 of the world's largest asset managers, so that's fund managers and allocators, financial institutions, think big banks, payment providers, et cetera, and professional traders at the largest institutionally focused conference in digital assets, DAS London. Now, it's very rare that you get the likes of JP Morgan, 
Goldman Sachs, Point72, the large HFTs, the family offices all in one room at the same time. So if you want to know what the big money is doing in digital assets these days, this is the conference for you. To give you an early sneak peek at some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about, one, the intersection of macro and digital assets. And where are we in the market cycle? We're going to be talking about real world assets, so that's stable coins, on-chain treasuries, all of that fun stuff. And we're going to be talking about things from the allocator perspective. So what are the big money managers in crypto doing these days? And because you are such a good listener of On The Margin, I'm giving you an extra code MARGIN20. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. Again, use code MARGIN20, and I will see you in sunny London town in March. So... I think it's a, it's a really good point. There's so much emotion that goes into this, especially the crypto markets, which don't have the same degree of the high frequency trading firms building out algos that are sort of making the, the price. Not as many adults in the room either. I mean, not only is it emotional, but it's, it's youthful exuberance, which is even hyper emotional. Yes. Right. So, and, and that's not a criticism. I, I don't, don't take that wrong. Oh, it's just an old guy. He's a boomer. No, there is, there is a reason that temperance and wisdom, because it's all the mistakes you make when you're young and when you're young, it's not your fault. So you just don't know, right. You don't have experience. You don't have wisdom. It's not a bad thing. It just, just is. And there happens to be more energy and vigor, vigorousness in, in youth, which means you extend the highs and the lows. And so it's a hundred percent. I, uh, there's, I, you know, I, what my, my learning listening to a lot of people who've worked on trading desks is kind of like in a bull market, the young guys do better, but in a bear market, take those guys fingers off the button because they will not, they haven't oh done that before. Just send them on vacation. A hundred percent. Because it, it's, and again, it's not a criticism. It's just, you haven't seen it, right? Yeah. You haven't been through. And, and it's more, the, the most important thing is you can't learn, particularly in trading and investing, you can't learn from other people's mistakes. I mean, you literally can't. You have to make the mistake. You have to feel the pain of loss in your gut. You have to like go through the recovery process. And, you know, in my prior life, when I was an allocator, I would allocate capital to the best and the brightest, right? Hedge funds and and managers. And one of the things that, that, you know, we all have this checklist and, you know, check the box for all the things and do due diligence. One of the things that, and it really was probably from Cambridge Associates, you know, the consultant, but but it had been inculcated by everybody, and particularly Yale was big on this and, and others uh, in the endowment world, is, you know, we need to see uh, the investment manager have money in the fund, okay? And no personal trading, right? All the money has to be in the fund, no, no outside, no personal trading. And I remember having this conversation with this really great insurance only manager. Imagine that only analyzing insurance stocks, incredibly boring, but he was really good at it, made a lot of money. I actually was in Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, I went down on my checklist and because I was young and exuberant and said, you know, no outside training. He says, well, for me and the, and the partners, you're right in the fund, but for the young guys, I make them have trading accounts. 
I'm like, no, that that's that's wrong. He's like, no, no, listen. He says, I want them to lose a few fingers. They think they're so smart. They worked on this project. And they're like, oh, I'm going to buy it. And they get crushed and they learn because they lose their own money. I'm like, oh my God, that's so good. He wanted them to lose a few fingers. Not their arm or, you know, or their, you know, their leg, but, but just, just a couple fingers. Yeah. I, you know, there's also a psychology. I don't want to get too far down the road here because I've still got my Bitcoin related questions for you, but I do wonder as well, there's some, there, uh, maybe something that's sort of related to that point is the idea of uh, founders selling secondary shares, which is, you know, the old, the canonical wisdom is a hundred percent of your net worth in, in the startup many years. I just, no, 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 and the idea is like, you'll be highly incentivized. I think there's a really fine line between being highly incentivized versus your brain eating itself from stress. And I, oh my just, gosh, no, no, it's, it's, it's the total wrong answer. It's the total wrong answer. You want them to take some amount, the running money, right? The FU money and put in T-bills mm. because then they're calm. And, and the thing is, if you have too much in the fund, right? Too many shares, too much in your own hedge fund, you will get more conservative. I, yeah, that's what you I was will get say more here. conservative. You that's will run the question. business too conservatively. You'll run the fund too conservatively. We had this with lots of managers. When they're small, they don't have any money. They're awesome. And then they get super rich and it, they keep plowing it back in the fund. And then they become, we're 20% of the fund. Like, well, why are your returns going like this? Hmm. Because you're managing, now you're playing prevent defense, which prevents yeah. you from winning. And it's like when you get a big lead, in a game and you see coaches do it all the time. They change their game plan. So they stop, run the game plan. It's working. And if the other team can't stop you, if you're not running up the score, it's okay. But if you, if you shift to that prevent nine times out of 10, it's not going to end well. Yeah. And I would advocate like, again, everything in moderation here, it doesn't make sense to have, 1% of your capital maybe as a, as a, I don't, the manager side of things yeah, yeah, I can't yeah. opine on, but uh, say, you know, there are, you can definitely, like there are cases, examples of this in crypto, people taking hundreds of millions of dollars out before you really even have necessarily product. Now that's not good. There's just a balance. Yeah, so there's balance. here's, here's what I want to, what I want to poke around and speculate about here, because when people talk about, okay, is the bull market back? Is, are we going to start running this thing back? People immediately superimpose their, the recent experience of price action when the market turned. And I think that was a little bit weird because COVID happened. So let me like take you back yeah. to 2019. This yep. was the price action for uh, Bitcoin in that year. Here, I'm going to share my screen. Yep. So I remember 2019 as a pretty desolate year. Like <laughs> it was a low point in sentiment for the entire industry. You know, this was pre- uh, DeFi or any of these, any of these other use cases. So really, it was like Bitcoin only. Now, probably some people listening are still going to say it's still Bitcoin only. I don't believe that. But uh, yeah. anyway, well, so yeah. The, yeah. but it was very the ICO bubble had just rolled off. Actually, ironically, a lot of the things people say today, the SEC is going to put all these people in jail. I know the SEC is civil, not criminal, but yada yada, all these enforcement actions. But if you look at the price chart, not bad, right? If you were to look at this in isolation. You know, Bitcoin starts the year at about 3,500, ends the year at about 8,300. You'd say, hey, that's a that's a pretty good year, right? Yep. Price-wise. Now, it wasn't reflected necessarily in the sentiment. Now, if you go, if you, if you go out a little bit 
a little bit further even. So let's say to mid, um, you know, mid 2020, if you remember what, what ended up happening was it actually kept sort of drifting up and then had this absolute, you know, it, it, it died almost during COVID. I think this price chart isn't even showing it, but I think it it, it hit like four thousand or something like that. And I sort uh, of sorry, do. I think it actually hit thirty five hundred. Yep. Yeah, and I do wonder. You know, it's it's impossible to do the counterfactual because after that dip in March, it was off to the races for for Bitcoin. But I do wonder if maybe there's a counterfactual here where if COVID hadn't happened, and maybe we would have just sort of drifted sort of more steadily higher throughout the course of the year or something like that. And maybe that's what's likely to happen this year because, you know, barring some, God forbid, like World War Three black swan type event, maybe that's no, no, what no, ends that, up that happening. Is, that is the definition of uh, crypto summer, right? <laughs> you know, it, it's so funny when when people, um, I say that they're, they're not, not, not paying attention to to the data. And, you know, crypto winter is short and brutish, brutal, right? It, it's brutal. You go down a lot in a very short period of time, about a 12-month period, and, and it's ugly. But then spring is not a V-shaped bottom. Spring is this just yuck. Right. Basically, you're drifting sideways. You got a lot of volatility and people get hopeful and then they get crushed again and and you get you get ick. then summer is this slow drift upward back to fair value. Because remember, all of this comes back to fair value. Bitcoin is a network. It is. It's the most powerful yeah. computing network in the world. There's big B Bitcoin, there's little B Bitcoin, right? The network is a thing that we can value and we can then own a piece of it through the protocol, the token. And we can own a piece of the protocol through the token. And what people don't pay attention to, I don't think, is the fair value follows this Metcalf's law model. We've had Tim on the show and he talks about it. got to get Tim back on. I was gonna it has, it has little fluctuations when things happen like, you know, China bans mining and the hash rate declines. Well, yeah, that's going to have an impact on the, the network. Guess what? And then it comes roaring back and now we're at new all-time highs in hash rate. And you'll have people flee and you get a bunch of wallets that disappear but then they slowly come back and now we have more wallets than ever before. And so the fundamentals follow this, this Metcalf's law model. So, but, but the price isn't the value, right? We, we talk about this over and over in every asset. Price is a liar. Price is simply what you and I or two other people decide to exchange a small value of a good or service. That's the price. That's not the value, Right? The, the, the value of anything could be higher or lower, right? That's when stocks are undervalued or overvalued or bonds are undervalued or overvalued. Bubbles form, right? There was a great, we did a, a uh, we do our weekly webinars uh, and we did the hedge with capital D yesterday. And, and Corey, one of my partners had this great chart of the two big bubbles, the Japan bubble and the U.S. stock bubble. and the bond bubble and they declined the same amount 
It's like, well, that, that wasn't a bubble. Like long bonds were in one of the greatest bubbles of all time because we took interest rates all the way to zero for 13 years. And everybody bought them. The banks bought them. Everybody bought them. And the price got stupid and the yields got stupid. And, and now that's, for, you know, that's changed. And TLT is down 50 some odd percent, you know, fell the same amount as the Japanese stock market or the U.S. stock market in uh, 2007, global financial crisis. So bubbles pop. But the thing about Bitcoin is when, when it's below fair value, as it is today, it will drift. And when I say it's fair value, again, according to Tim's model, about 50K, it's like 52, 53, but I'm going to just round it to 50. And we're going to drift toward that number because we're, we're out of spring. We're in summer, June to, you know, June of next year. Then the halving occurs. Then we're going to go into fall. Now, what's fall? Well, fall is where people start to pay attention because the halving happens. And now the fair value actually goes up because now the price has to adjust to reflect the fact that the miners are getting less rewards. And he says, well, that, why does that have to happen? I'm like, well, it's just built into the code. And I think it's one of the mad genius things about, about the code is that you build in this mechanism that forces an increase in price because rising prices attract attention. And so then you get the movement and we'll get back to fair value. And think about it, fair value will now be 100. Okay, now we're going to drift back to fair value. Well, then what happens? It went from 34 to 100? Oh, oh my God, I got to get in, I got to get. And you have the FOMO and then you get the parabolic move. And then we get above fair value, which sows the seeds of demise that you have to have another crash. <laughs> so this boom bust period. Cycle of life, baby. Cycles. And, and it's shorter than the norm. Like stocks have done this for 200 years. It's an 11 year cycle. And we, we messed it up with the QE era. But if you go back and you look at history, there's this 11 year cycle of the economic cycle and the business cycle and the Fed liquidity cycle. It's not, it's not rocket science. It's not voodoo. It's real. And the cycle in, in Bitcoin is shorter because it was put into the code. And I, I just, and then humans are reacting to the code and humans get super fearful right? At the bottom. And they get super greedy at the top. Yeah. It's, it's the nature let, of the beast. Let me try to describe how I view the cycle in Bitcoin and what the, what the catalysts are and just describe the halving and how this all kicks in. I'm going to rely on two things, which is the dynamics of the halving. And then there's also this idea that Eddie Lazarin, I still, this is probably my favorite article I've ever read in crypto, the price uh, the price cycle of innovation, or I'll get the actual name, but it's the idea that price actually moves first, which drives yeah. the innovation, which is the opposite of how most people think about it. So mm. let's just set the scene for where we are. We're in a market where sentiment is extremely low, activity is low, and most of all, liquidity is low. So you can think about there's an equilibrium for Bitcoin, which mostly has to do with the supply, right? So think about like Bitcoin has reset in terms of price, the miners are churning out a certain amount of Bitcoin. They are selling that Bitcoin. A new equilibrium has been established that determines the price based on how much the, the miners are 
basically mining and then selling out to the market. And there's this kind of equilibrium that's established in a low liquidity environment. Having comes along. That supply gets cut in half. Think about it like this. If it's more comfortable for your sort of sensibilities, imagine the out, the, uh, the mining gold producers could produce half the amount of gold, right? What would happen to the price? It would largely go up. That typically happens in a part of the cycle where the liquidity is super low. Suddenly the price starts to move. Once the price starts to move, everyone wakes up and says, well, hold, hold on a second. What's going on here? I need to get in. And honestly, it won't be a bull market until my dad didn't text me this week. So it's not exactly. a bull market yet because exactly. my dad didn't text me about what's going on with Bitcoin yet. But eventually those texts start to come in. The price starts to move up. There's this reflexive cycle which kicks in, which is, okay, the price is moving up. Something must be happening. I got to buy. Then that leads to more positive media coverage. The positive media coverage brings in new entrepreneurs and developers, and it starts with the price, and then that actually becomes real fundamentals. And 100%. then what ends up happening is like just cycle, like this is how it's played out in the past, and I think you can already see it starting to play out. Bitcoin is the thing that runs first. Bitcoin is this quality premium thing. Everyone has 18 months of mental scarring. Like, I'm not going to take a risk. I'm going to go into my Bitcoin here. And I do think Bitcoin is the only asset in crypto that trades on a macro basis. And I think it's the institutional money, not the retail money that's moving Bitcoin right now. So Bitcoin starts to move first. Eventually people say, hey, maybe I'm feeling wealthy again. Like I can take some risk. Maybe I'll go into like Ethereum, Solana, right? Some of the other big L1s that are kind of tested. And then they start going, then the leverage tends to build up. Then you get into the the S coins and then then it all sort of implodes. But that is my... That's how I think the these cycles end up end up working, yeah. and I bet you something similar will happen this time too. Yeah, oh, I, I mean, I, it definitely will, mm. and and it's it's literally my hashtag just math. Mm. It's, it's literally math, and and then and then the human emotions that react to that math, but the, but the core, the fundamentals of it, are math, and and the the thing that people forget. The last up cycle, right, in uh, end of, of 20, so uh, kind of October, uh, when, when you started to get those texts from, from your dad and, and your friends, and, and then we all went to Thanksgiving, and I was on television, you know, the morning of Thanksgiving, I'm like, it's like 4.30 in the morning in Tulsa, so I, you know, and I'm like bleary-eyed, and and, uh, you know, you know what, what should we do? You know, Bitcoin's moving. I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> of course it's moving. People are talking about it and the price is moving up. And uh, we went from 10,000 to 60,000 in the next 90 days. Now, the fair value was only 30,000. So what the hell did we go to 60,000 for? Because price is a liar. People don't give a crap what fair value. Most people couldn't tell you what the fair value of anything is. They can tell you the fair value of Amazon. They can tell you the fair value of Microsoft. They can tell you the fair value of Bitcoin. They don't really care. They definitely couldn't tell you the fair value of AMC. It's probably zero. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, it's not zero, but it's not very high. Not very high. So anyway, but no, but but that Thanksgiving event. That's where the humanness of these markets really gets exacerbated. And if you go back in, in all the previous cycles, both good and up and down, you know, because this last Thanksgiving or two Thanksgivings ago, people were saying, oh, my God, I don't want to go. They're just going to yell at me. 
right? Because I got them into Bitcoin and it's down. Like, well, remember, you didn't get them into anything. You may have talked about it, but ultimately people have to pull the trigger. And yeah, I get I get nice texts sometimes about people saying, oh, you know, you 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 changed my life. I'm like, I didn't change your life. I talked about something, but you bought an asset that you believe in and it went up. You changed your life, not 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 me. So let me let me point out the last sort of interesting thing that's happening here, which is this divergence. I'm showing the price of Bitcoin opposite the 10-year yield gold and the S&P. This is, uh, this is some price action that you don't typically see, which is yields up, Bitcoin up, gold up, stocks down. So the yield up, stocks down part makes sense. But traditionally, and what we've seen for the last year, 18 months, is when yields go up, Bitcoin goes down. And I do think, shout out again, I'll, I'll call him out again, Quinn Thompson. I think he pointed this out and I think it's absolutely right, which is, you know, gold moves inverse relative to real rates. And maybe to be a little bit more precise, it's the expectation of real rates. So right now, if you look at the tips market, you can get, you know, two and a half percent real yield on a 10 year basis. That's a pretty amazing deal. Yep. Yep. And I do wonder if the market is looking at that saying it's probably not going to get much better than this, which means the expectations are, real yields trend lower, which is good for both Bitcoin and gold. And maybe that's why both Bitcoin and gold are sort of waking up here. And maybe to, because I want to get to some of the macro stuff and talk about GDP. The bookend that I would put on this whole section of what we're discussing is I feel like, I, I feel like headwinds are starting to turn into tailwinds for Bitcoin. That's, yeah. that's how I would yeah, yeah. frame all of this. When everything collapsed uh, a year and a half or two years ago, is it's it's depressing to be in that scenario because you know it's still going to be a long time, right? Like the light at the end of the tunnel exists, but you know it's a long time from now. The the nearest uh, catalyst is the having, which is like a full two years out, and that just feels like a really long time. Now the having looks like it's much closer. It's only a couple months out. There's a spot ETF, and rates are moving in a direction which is probably favorable. Yeah, well, I mean the problem is. Two years ago, 18 months ago, 12 months ago, there was a light, but it was an oncoming train and it was going to run you over. And now that train's gone. And now the light you see actually is the end of the tunnel. And, and that light is, is going to grow increasingly bright. And look, all of, all of the tailwinds that you're talking about, Michael, what's great analogy are, are there. And, and, you know, we're heading towards that, that bright light at the, at the end of the tunnel, which is April, May next year. Uh, I remember 2024 is the year I've been talking about for almost 10 years. I've been talking about this cycle where innovation happens every 14 years, 54, 68, 82, 96, 2010, 2024. I started talking about this in 2013 and it seemed like a long time off. Now it's, it's right there. I mean, we are almost into the beginning of this cycle of adoption of the internet of blockchains or the truth net. Look, Bitcoin is going to become the global settlement layer for all assets in the world. That is a big ass thing technical term there. Um, and I just, I, people just don't comprehend it yet. And it's because we haven't even started. This is the amazing thing. 
yes, Bitcoin uh, early next week will celebrate the 15th anniversary, 1-5 anniversary of the release of the white paper when we're all trick-or-treating. That is the 15th anniversary. It's just the prelude, right? That's the warm-up band. That's, that's you know, whatever warm-up band you like to, to talk about, you know, before the big show. The big show starts in April next year. And in between now and then, there's going to be an approval of a BlackRock ETF that's going to gather tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars. It's not for sale. That's the part that I think people aren't really paying attention to. The, the only way that that ETF is going to be able to accumulate that much value of fiat is for the price to go up. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's just fact. Fire in my bones, baby. Fire in my bones. That's a, that's a good place to end the discussion about Bitcoin. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code Margin10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. And uh, I want to move on to talk about some of the stuff that you and I have been... I want to move on to the macro part yeah. here. And uh, there's a bonds element to this. But uh, I want to discuss actually GDP. So this is a, uh, yeah, we we got our GDP number for uh, Q3. And, you know, this is, we're looking at a, a chart here of the, this is something that was put together by Bloomberg based on the Bureau of Economic Analysis. And the title of this chart is the U.S. economy expands by almost, by most in almost two years. So the, uh, the, the real GDP number, so real exclusive of inflation is 4.9%. Uh, and that's against the expectation of 4.5%. So mostly what's driving that is consumer spending. The consumer is still alive and well. But I mean, Mark, how do you interpret this this expansion? Because what we've been uh, hearing about all year is this is... I saw a tweet. So, so, many, things, so many things. So first Best of all, this is, the, this is the first estimate. It will be revised down hard in the next two revisions. Uh, this We've seen this playbook before. Uh, and I, I, I want to give props, but I can't remember the guy's name. I'll, I'll find it. And uh, uh, he found the, uh, the other two examples. Uh, one was in fourth quarter 2007, uh, right before the, the collapse in 2008. And the other was in uh, uh, 2000. And Correlation does not equal causation, but there is a reason why you get these spikes. And, and the spike in, in 07 was 4.9, and the spike in, in 00 was like 11, 
I mean, it's like some crazy number that got revised. And, and what was funny in the 07 one, there was a, a thing at the bottom saying that um, we had to release this number without finalizing it because uh, of certain circumstances, which basically meant we had to make up a number because we had a political agenda. And when the real numbers came in, it, it went way lower. Um, so I, I think this number will come way down. There is an element to it. You, you mentioned the consumer spending part. Part of that is is real in that you know gasoline prices went up, and so people are spending more. I always find that kind of curious that that's not necessarily buying the same amount of stuff. It just costs more, but that's yeah, right. It shows up as better consumption. I don't, I don't really know why that that would be, but okay. Um, because remember, CPI excludes food and energy. So the food and energy prices go up, retail sales go up, but it's not adjusted for real terms because they don't include that in CPI. I'm like, well, that's ridiculous, actually. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's like the old joke about if you don't heat or cool your house, put gas in your car, send your kids to college, go to the grocery store, pay for health care, buy insurance, you're right, there's no inflation. So... But if you happen to do any of those other things, there's, there's some inflation. So, but the, the other piece of this is the fiscal mess that we're in, right? We are money laundering hundreds of billions of dollars to Ukraine. Now we're sending a bunch of money to, to Israel as well. And um, that's that the fiscal mess is, is bad and getting worse. And, and the government spending component of that 4.9 was, was a big number. I can't remember exactly the number but it was, was a big number. And it was the biggest number in two years um, by a pretty large order of magnitude. So look, I, I think this is the um, last cathartic kind of uh, piece of good news that we'll look back on and say, yeah, we should have seen the, the train coming. So the opposite of the train already ran over us in crypto and, and now we got the end of the tunnel. I, I think that light in front of people for equities and, and ec economies is, is a train and, and it's about to go splat. And I'll tell you why I think that. So I was at this conference um, this week. And so a couple of highlights, one, Howard Marks came down and, and spoke and, you know, I love Howard and, and he's, he's amazing. He, he just gave great talk about, uh, you know, why it's a good time to, to think about, you know, buying bonds. And he doesn't mean bonds, treasuries, he means credit, right? He's like, look, you can buy bonds of companies that are going to survive. They may not be the best companies in the world, but they're going to survive. And, and you can buy them where they're yielding, you know, 12, 13, 14% right now. It's a pretty good deal because that's a guaranteed claim, right? A bond is a contractual claim. The equity of those businesses, now, it may be a better speculation that if those companies survive, those, those equities go up more, but you have a tail risk that, that the equity is worthless. So he was making the case to, to buy credit. But the other highlight for me was um, there's this guy, <laughs> probably the biggest regret of my investing career. Uh, it's a pretty big thing to say. But I met this 
kid. He was a kid at the time. Um, he and his partner were at Stanford Business School. And I got introduced to them through a friend of friend. I was out there. Actually, this is amazing. I was out there meeting Dan Moorhead in 2013. Wow. Where he introduced me to the whole concept of Bitcoin and blockchain. So it was a pretty big week for me. And uh, I take the good with the bad then. So yeah, the good with the bad. So that was, you know, that's right. That was, that was, that was good. But then, you know, I went over to have lunch with these two kids and Dan Rasmussen is his name and Verdad uh, is the company. And he, he told me that he had worked at, at Bain Capital and he, as an intern, uh, not as an intern, as a um, summer associate. And his project was to study all the deals that they'd done at Bain Capital and why things weren't going as well in the, in the later funds as they did in the early funds. And he went through and he came up with this conclusion that if you pay seven times EBITDA or less, you always make money in buyouts. When you pay more than seven times EBITDA, you don't make any money. And he took, he took his presentation, he brought it into the, and, and basically all the deals were being done at 13, 14, 15 times EBITDA. And at the time, and the partner's like, that's wrong. Do it again. No, that's, that's, not, that's not right. And so he went back and did the data and he brought it back and said, said, nope, nope, this is never getting out. No one will ever know this. And uh, so he said, well, fine. I'm taking the idea. And I'm going to do it in the public markets. So he had this idea to buy stocks in the public markets around the world, selling seven times EBITDA and below, like a buyout. And needless to say, it was a great idea. And uh, he now has a billion dollars. And I, at the time, could have given him a couple million dollars and owned a piece of the firm. And anyway, but we never consummated the deal. And it's my bad. So I missed it. But Dan is amazing. He's a great writer. And if you don't follow him and read his stuff, you, sh you should read his stuff. But he also Dan. has a, a fund in Japan. Yeah. And he, he, he does the same thing in Japan. And Japan has the cheapest stocks in the world. Right, the average price to book in Japan is below one. The average price to book in the U.S. is three and a half. Now, do you really think that every company in America is three and a half times as good as companies in Japan? No, it's just not the case. So, Japan is crushing it. It's the best performing market uh, this year, large market, uh, and it's not close. I mean, it's it's three times better than than the S and P. So he was up talking about this, and and one of the things. We got in this debate. Uh, he was actually, he doesn't hedge the yen. And I said, well, I don't understand that because the yen has nowhere to go but down. And if you don't hedge the yen, then you're giving up gains because the currency fluctuation. He says, well, but, you know, we're buying value companies and we don't want to worry about the currency. And, and uh, I just don't understand. Just I, I would hedge because, you know, the yen... Because their debt problem, they have to devalue their currency. That's the only way out. So long story short, um, this uh, business development woman uh, from London, amazing British accent, where we're going to be for DAS. Um, mm -hmm. See how we did that? That was pretty good. Look huh? at that, baby. Margin 20. And uh, <laughs> yeah, DAS. Yeah. So uh, there's a guy uh, that no one's ever heard of in the US named uh, David Ruffer. And it was a $30 billion hedge fund. Okay. 
30 billion. Oh, I remember, I remember Ruffer. They yeah. were one of the early buyers of Bitcoin back in 2020, 20, early 2021. Yeah, absolutely. And but, they sold well, it. And I remember thinking, what are they, what do they know? Now, what do they know? They know a little bit. This guy's, you know, this guy's <laughs> they know a little like, bit. he's a legendary investor. He's right up there with Alan Howard. And, um, but most people have never heard of him. And uh, he has taken a massive, long yen bet. And I'm like, I no, I, I know there's no way. And and then she told me about why. And, and he's like, look, it's coming. There's going to be a big correction. And the flight to safety asset is still the yen because it's a funding currency for this carry trade around the world. And the yen's going to strengthen just like it did in this chart where that, that big strengthening uh, in the middle of the chart. Um, and uh, we're looking at the, the USD, the dollar yen cross, yeah. by the way, for those of you who are following yeah. along. On audio. And I was like, oh my God, there are no, um, there are no differences of opinion. In, how do you, how's it, how, shoot, how's this go? It's the quote. Um, there actually are no disagreements in investing other than time horizon. Right? That's a really, yeah, that's a good point. So we, we both have, we're both right about the end. Long-term, it's definitely going down. But short-term, I'll bet you he's right. And we're in for some nastiness. So I, that, was, that was very high signal for me. Mm. That's good advice. I mean, we're looking, by the way, for those of you who are following along, we're looking at the, uh, the dollar yen cross here and going back to beginning of 2022, where the yen weakened quite a bit against the dollar, then it strengthened basically end of 2022 through beginning of 23. And now it's weakening it again. And the, it's flirting with 150 Japanese yen per US dollar, which is a key level for the Bank of Japan. So this is the famous Widowmaker trade. <laughs> People always try to do this. When is the the Bank of Japan going to finally have to hang it up and yep. stop with their yield curve control? And yeah, it's been losing people money for how long, Mark? Like 20, 20 some years. Oh, right? 30 years. Yeah, we yeah. just had the 30th anniversary of the Widowmaker. And, you know, it's funny. I, I remember um, there's the story, right, of of this trader. And his, his nickname was Rip Van Winkle. And uh, they... He went short Japanese government bonds. Um, no, I'm sorry. He went long Japanese government bonds when they were 7%, yielding 7%. And, uh, you know, yield fell to five and they said, hey, don't you want to sell? He's like, wake me when they're three. And they got to three. And uh, someone said, hey, don't you want to sell? He says, wake me when they're two. Wake me when they're one. Wake me when they're zero. And, and he kept holding me and everyone was trying to short the, the Japanese government bond saying it just had to collapse. And, you know, Rip Van Winkle was right and everyone else was, was wrong. But on the yen, I was in Hugh Sloan's office in London, where we'll be in March for, for DAS. Man, we are on a roll today. We are. And, um, and uh, Hugh is, is one of my favorite guys on the planet. I mean, he's just an amazing investor, uh, started his career in Japan, in Tokyo, uh, did all of, of Southeast Asia. My, my, my favorite story on that, remember I was an allocator and so I would do diligence on people and trying to find out is Hugh a good investor and said, all right, I need to talk to your boss. So I, I called his boss, Richard Thornton, 
And, and I call him and I, and I hear this, like these waves lapping in the background. And he's like, oh, don't, don't, don't worry about it. I'm just, I'm just out on the beach. And he lived down in the Bahamas and where he had retired. I'm like, it was pretty good life. And uh, so I just, I just, you know, wanted to call you uh, to ask you about, about Hugh Sloan. And he says, oh, my favorite employee. And uh, I'm like, okay, that's a good start. And um, I said, so you know, he tells me that, that you gave him a, a bunch of money to help him start his fund. And I was just wondering why. He says, oh, he's got tired of losing to Hugh every year. So I just gave him all my money and I came down here and sent him to the beach. I was like, oh my God, could you get a better reference call than that? Um, so, but I was with you literally on the day, this is luck, uh, that Abe-san got elected as prime minister uh, in Japan in 2011. And he turns to me and he says, Mark, the yen will be lower for the rest of your life. Wow. I'm like, Wow. Okay. And the yen was 78. It had gone from 300 to 78, right? The massive widow maker, right? Where everybody's like, it has to go back. It has to go back. Mm -mm. Since then, 78 to 150. Now, it doesn't mean there's not volatility. And what Ruffer's saying, we're about to have another wave of volatility because the global markets are going to, to implode. That's basically what he's saying. And there's going to be a massive flight to, to safety in the end. And um, again, it's not my call, but I don't have a $30 billion hedge fund either. And I'm, I'm going to listen, you know, when, uh, you know, the modern day equivalent of EF Hutton talks. Yeah. I, I mean, we've been talking about it at no, the last, the last thing that I'll show you that we've been, that we've been discussing quite a bit because it flew in the face a little bit of, what I just logically think um, should be happening is new home sales. So <laughs> this is, I mean, it, I mean, it was up. There's like a big an oxymoron, beat. right? Yeah, there's a big beat on new home sales. And, it, you know, I'm not a TA type of guy. There, This could just be some sort of bounce. I will say mortgage applications are at something like a 20-year low. So maybe these are just, there's some sort of lagging effect here. But this is I'll the tell thing. You part of what this is, part of this is people buying new homes to rent. This is the thing now. No, this is the thing. People are going to the builders and saying, I'll buy a block of your homes at a discount. So I'm not going to give you full price because I'm going to rent them. And this, this is the whole WEF kind of, you know, whatever thing. This is why millennials feel disenfranchised. I, I, no, no, no. You know but what it's, I mean? It's it's the Klaus Schwab quote, right? Right? You'll own nothing and like it. I mean, this this is this is this is big. This, no, this is big. This is this is a again. The question is: Is it causal, or um, meaning causal? Like, is it really these guys saying you? We want you to rent, not own. Maybe, maybe, but or is it? the price to income level is so wrong that no one actually can afford to buy. So, you know, big institutional money is going to come in and fill that, that, that void and make it available to rent. And either way, it's 
potentially bad. Um, and when I say potentially, because there is an argument that says if instead of buying a home, right, which was the the choice, and you mentioned this last last week when we were talking about this, which was the savings technology of choice for us boomers. And it was mandated, right? I mean, it's basically forced on you because that's the way the tax law worked. It, it encouraged, I shouldn't say forced, it encouraged you, not so subtly, to, to own a home and, and get the interest deduction. There are a lot of people who probably could have done equally well had they rented and took the difference between the rent and a mortgage and put it in equities. Because no one ever does that, right? If, if, you, if you have a lower rent payment than your mortgage, you're probably not saving the difference. You're probably spending the difference, you know, buy the new iPhone or whatever. But there is an argument that says, if I can get a decent rent and I don't have to rent money, which is basically what you're doing with, with a mortgage, and I invest the difference, particularly if I invest the difference in digital assets like, like Bitcoin, mm. um, there is an argument that, that this generation could end up better off than their parents. I don't know. It's possible. It's possible. So I guess my sort of closing observation here about this is it's, this is not some God-given right to own a home. It, but what it is a part, there are other countries that this is not the norm, right? Where they're renting cultures instead of owning cultures. What I would say is that this is sort of part of the implicit American social contract. And I, I don't know, I've sort of seen this with people that are around the age of around 30 or something like that. And they start to think, okay, I need forward progress in my life. And that can come in the form of, you know, job sort of promotion, marriage, kids, or frankly, like owning a home. Owning a home is one of these things where I'm like, I'm moving up in the world. I have made some progress here. I have a thing, I have property, and it serves as the financial benchmark for, for them in a whole lot of ways. And we're, what we're looking at, Mark and I are looking here at uh, this real estate uh, percentage by generation in the US. And yeah, it's just the millennial portion is just getting absolutely trounced by the, by the boomer portion. I've talked about this quite a bit, so I don't want to, I don't want to rail on it too much. I actually want to end with, because we were talking about currency. Uh, let me, let me thread the needle here by telling a sort of embarrassing story about myself here at the same time as there's a currency convergent and London. I'm going to make all of this work in one story. So last last awesome. London that we did was around the time where, do you remember when there was that problem in the gilt market yep. and the pound almost fell to parity with the dollar? So yep. that coincided almost to the day of Das London, the last time we did it. I went, I was coming from a vacation in Morocco with my parents. I said, I'm going to be a little bit of an opportunist here. I don't want to pack a suit when I'm trekking around Morocco. I'm going to get myself a new suit in London. I bought myself like three suits in my entire life. It's like, nice. I, I'm, I'm due for a new one. And, uh, and it's cheap. It's going to be real cheap because, uh, you know, my dollars are going further there. Yeah. So I'm in the, I'm in this, uh, suit supply over in London and there's this European sort of guy that's, that's helping me out. And I was, he was, you know, he kind of had me feeling myself with this suit. He's like, Oh yeah, it looks so good. Yeah. But you should get this turtleneck. And I was like, I don't know about that. I don't know if I'm a turtleneck kind of guy. I respect it, but I'm not sure if I can pull it off. He's like, wow. try, the turtleneck, try the turtleneck. And I looked at it and I was like, you know what? 
I'm going to go for it, baby. Ah! <laughs> I'm going to go for this. And uh, I, I literally texted a picture of my girlfriend and I was like, should I get this? She was like, no, you shouldn't get this. I was like, no. what did she know? I'm doing it anyway. I'm going to get it. And uh, so there's this photo of uh, one of our employees, Reed, who's been with us for a long time. Uh, he took a photo of me and photoshopped on stage like this white cat. Cause I've got the black turtleneck in the suit, like a Dr. Evil. So all of this to say the incentive here, if folks use margin 20 to sign up for London, I will send you that picture of the cat, but you got to do it within the next let's, I'm going to give you a week. If you buy a ticket with a week, I will send you that ticket and I will put it, or I will send you that picture. I'll put it out into the world. The question Um, is, is it Schrodinger's cat? That's a great question. That is a great question because that's where we are right now. It's Schrodinger's market, but I know Schrodinger's market. So look, um, Das 20, join us in, in jolly old England. And, uh, we promise it'll be fun and maybe there'll even be a cat on stage. Maybe there will be. You know what is actually going to be fun though, Mark? This is right. We'll have a box for sure. And then you'll have to decide, can you prove the cat is in the box? This is also going to be two weeks after the final deadline for the iShares Bitcoin ETF and about a month before the halving. You could not pick a better time. Oh, no, no, no. It's going to be rocking. I mean, rocking, rocking. And it's going to be, it's right before the eyes of March. And, uh, Mm. And we'll be, you know, right in the shadow of the Globe Theater with Shakespeare. Maybe we'll even recite a little Shakespeare on stage. I was just saying, we should do some fun touristy things. Maybe a little bus tour or something like that. Do a little pub, you know, pub thing. Uh, That'd be fun. Yeah, Shakespeare's Head. Amazing pub. Um, Love it. Been there multiple times. Um, But uh, it's going to be a blast. And between now and then, holy moly, it is going to be... We're going to have so much to talk about every week. Um, you know, we, we, we might have to extend to two hours. Like We might. I'm just, I, I'm just kidding. <laughs> People are like, oh my God, no, please. I can only take you. I can't take you for an hour, let alone two. Um, but, you know, the, the shout out to the people who actually do listen to us every week. We are, you know, so grateful. So um, grateful. Really I know, it's, it's, it's the coolest thing. I, not a week goes by where I don't run into someone in an airport or a football game or someone sends me a note or as a conference and they're like, Hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I have coffee with you every Saturday. I'm like, yeah, it's just, it's just a really cool thing. And, and I remember when you asked me to do this, I'm like, oh, I don't know, every week, really I do this I every week. And it is the best hour of my week. It's just, it's just awesome. Me too. You know, why I'm so happy with how this has turned out is because Here's my theory about this is that I think people tune in for the people like that. All the longstanding podcasts that I tune into, I'm like, okay, there's a lot of information that I like, but I'm just tuning in to kind of hear. And I feel like we've, you know, we bonded over the course of the last couple of years. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's been, uh, it's been a lovely. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's Absolutely. just fun. It's just fun. Absolutely. Um, so yeah. no, it's fun. It's fun. It's great. So I am, I'm grateful to you. I'm grateful to, to everybody listening. And, uh, I'm grateful that that we'll all be together in uh, jolly old England in in the big year. The 2024 is going to be so amazing. I mean, not not just and that's not promissory. I'm not saying it's going to be awesome in the market. I'm just saying it's an amazing year. I mean, it is this confluence year, technologically, politically, socially, markets. I mean, it's it's just it's just going to be 
It's going to be an awesome year. I think so too. That's a good place to end it. Mark, best hour of my week, my friend. I will see you next week. Have a good one. Happy Halloween, everybody. Happy Halloween.